Hey, Andy. Hey, Jed, how are you? I'm doing terrific. Great to see you again. It's great to see you. How's it been the last few weeks? Busy, but but good. And I got to say, my optimism is actually increasing. I think there's a lot of good stuff going on in Ed Reform, uh, which, I, which I hope we can touch upon some of those things today. Yeah, well, I think today we might touch on there's good, there's good and bad. But yeah, things are, you know, it's, it's, it's a busy time. There is a lot of stuff going on, particularly some of the work you do is real close to the ground. Some of the work we do is real close to the ground. And that's, that's what gives you that's what gives you the energy. Yeah, well, I, well, it's it's been getting close to the operators, getting close to the advocates. I think, at least on the charter side, the closer that you get right now, you actually see there's a lot more progress happening than perhaps the general public is aware of. Yeah, totally. And also, just like any time you can get in and around schools and kids, it just gives you energy. Yeah. That was always my strategy on like bad days. Just try to you know find a place you can go read to kids or just hang out at the school. Yeah. And it kind of makes you feel a little bit better about things. Um. So, hey, we've, we've managed to get through, I think, like three episodes of this podcast without ever saying the name. So we should, like, this is the Wonky Folk podcast, and I'm Andy Rotherham. And I'm Jen Wallace. Uh, uh, and uh, and thanks, thanks for listening. Um, Jen, our la- last one, I think it was, we talked about how The Economist has just been, like, hitting the ball, you know, hitting the cover off the ball on um, uh, education coverage. Just great stuff. And I have not read the most recent issue, but you said there's an article in there that caught your eye. Yeah, I think The Economist is really interesting for a lot of reasons. I just love the kind of outsider perspective. Uh, although, I mean, The Economist has gotten so sucked into, you know, the American mainstream that they sometimes lose that that European orientation on our, on our work. But still, I just find them a very a great uh, pressure tester of like some assumptions I have. And the last article that they issued around education was around math reform and in San Francisco. And they were really talking about how the quest for equity by getting rid of AP classes and accelerated classes and having everyone come together in the same uh, class is actually not doing anybody any uh, favors. It's not helping the accelerated students. It's not helping those that are far behind but also just from an equity standpoint, they don't really see that those models of schooling are choosing to, are, are resulting in kids ending up staying together anyway. So it, it throws into question the whole, the whole math change that we've seen in a lot of different places in the last five or six years. And it also reminds me a lot of high-tech high days because we had these, this notion of common intellectual mission. We didn't want to ability track. We didn't want to separate kids into uh, different groups of learners. And, and so we ended up keeping all kids together. And I think in some ways, high tech high really changed the national discussion or at least influenced the national discussion on common intellectual mission. But the thing that I think was lost in all of that was that while high tech high kept all the kids together in the same classes, they really specialized in teaching to the individual student and allowing the most accelerated student to get even more accelerated. And, you know, to obviously remediate for those that needed it. And I just think that, you know, this is another example of, is it one thing? Is it equity or is it excellence? You know, you have have these binary options that are presented to us. And when we choose one or the other, we lose the common sense middle that I think we just have to keep front and center for ed reformers whenever we can. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I think teachers also don't get a lot of support and training and sort of we talk a lot about differentiated instruction things like that they don't actually get training and even like having a theory of action around like what level are you going to pitch to in the classroom how are you going to help struggling kids catch up this is stuff that that you know teachers generally have to get on the job you're not getting it in a lot of in a lot of teacher prep programs and so 
Um, your article, though, reminds me of um, Rui Teixeira. He's a Democratic uh, political demographer. He wrote that book, um, uh, The Emerging Democratic Majority, you know, a while ago, and more recently has been sort of pushing the Democratic Party on sort of culture issues and so forth. And he had a piece about this issue in terms of merit and how Democrats are increasingly not perceived as the party of merit um, and, and the political consequences that can flow from that. And I think it was that article resonated with me because one of the really interesting things you saw in 2021 in the Glenn Youngkin election was, you know, how many immigrant parents and so forth were very frustrated with efforts to either restrict access to advanced classes, stuff around selective high school, sort of all of this. And like to your point a second ago about reformers, like I think the same thing's true. Like often the Democrats get caught up in this, like, are we for equity? Are we for excellence? And they become kind of all thumbs in ways that really alienate parents. And what the point of, um, of Rui's article we'll put it in the show notes was, you know, across all kinds of lines of difference, this idea of merit and excellence and so forth is actually really popular. And that there's an opportunity then to use that as a way to advance education reform, make sure kids are getting what they need to succeed and so forth. But if you if you are seen as being against that, or if you actually are against that with some of these policies, there's a price you're going to pay with parents. Yeah, you know, I was uh, regretting that our last uh, our last recording, I forgot the name of you know Daniel Markovitz who wrote this book, you know, the meritocracy trap, and I think it's really an interesting book. Um, not one that I would say I agree with all of its findings because it basically lurches very far into the anti-meritocracy, far left, almost San Francisco orientation toward things. Um, but the thing I think he does show that's very compelling is that the upper middle class and the wealthy have figured out how important education is and they do an incredibly great job of educating just their own kids. And changing the entire public education system such that those that are focused on meritocracy get the great um, education that they need. And so, you know, it's just something that we've got to keep front and center and, um, and keep pushing. Cause I think there are ways for us to push for all kids accessing more rigorous instruction without, you know, um, compromising, you know, on, on equity and, and some of the other things that are, you know, front and center for us these days. But, you know, San Francisco just provides another just shiny example of things just gone too far. And um, we'll see what happens to San Francisco itself. But for the rest of the country, I think, you know, as The Economist presents for us, there's a lot for us to learn here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that. And look, I mean, you, we saw this in the election with the school board, right? Like parents, even in San Francisco, parents have their breaking points. And, and, and that should have been sort of a wake up call that you need to be careful about how you approach these issues and, and you need to remember sort of where uh, where people are and not get caught up too much in sort of politics that are really out of the mainstream. Um, and, and I mean, the San Francisco experience, I thought, was just remarkable uh, in, in, in what happened there and also remarkable. And those lessons seem to have still bounced off a lot of places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'll I'll look forward to returning to this issue because I, I do think that like um, meritocracy and militancy from teachers unions, you know, together provide, you know, when, when, the, when the upper middle class liking their separate, you know, education partner with the teacher union to keep a status quo in place, it's very formidable a political power. And for me, the only way I can see us going forward is not to defeat it outright, but to basically have something that is there for the meritocracy folk and for the militancy folk, right? We, we show them 
that Ed Reform is not actually a zero-sum game, but is something that, you know, all boats can rise. But it's also incumbent upon us Ed Reformers just to be presenting our work in different terms. Definitely. And there was a time not that long ago where Ed Reform was and was seen as very disruptive around these around these issues. Um, Ed Reformers have sort of allowed themselves to be painted into a corner um, in terms of in terms of what they're about and so forth. And there, there's probably some pretty serious conversations to be had about getting back to that. Ed, Ed Reform, you know, back in, in the early aughts, for example, was, you know, highly disruptive around, uh, you know, accountability policies and so forth, focused on the kids who were most underserved and, and sort of really disruptive politics around that. And we've, we've kind of gotten away from that. Yeah, I thought, you know, on the, on the second article I was thinking about bringing up today was this the Kane uh, editorial or uh, op-ed in, in the New York Times, where he was really talking about um, the parents not being aware of just how far their kids are behind. Um, and, you know, Paul Vallis, you know, his first public gesture after losing the race in Chicago really comes out and advocates for accountability systems and transparency systems so that parents, you know, actually... Uh, you know, have the information. Question I have for you, Andy, is, I mean, how much do you think the question is, do parents know how far behind their kids are? Or have we gotten to the point where maybe kids, parents actually know, but they're being trained not even to care anymore? Do you have any view on that? Because, you know, it's, it's sobering when you start thinking that maybe they don't care as much as they used to. Well, my first view is we just referred to as the Kane paper. I like that. It, this is Tom Kane. Uh, yeah. he's, he's an economist at Harvard. I like that he's reached sort of Madonna or Prince like status <laughs> in the one name Kane. Um, uh, so yeah. So Tom Kane's a, yeah, a terrific, uh, one, wonderful person and just yeah. a terrific, uh, terrific analyst. Great researcher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I thought it, I thought that op-ed was 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 sobering. I was glad the Times ran it. We need to get more attention on this. I mean, we're still like we still really are having arguments about how much this stuff matters and learning loss and um, all of that. Like that that's a, that's a real reality on the ground. So people need to keep beating that drum. You know, I go back and forth on this. I, I tend to be in the camp that to the extent parents don't care, it's because they're unaware. Um, I mean, most people want you know, good things for their kids and so forth. And then there's obviously some cognitive dissonance. You don't want to think about your own kid being really far behind. I know as a parent, like I think about things, and I'm like, oh man, it's like hard to get my head around like mistakes you made and, and, and so forth. That's real. But I think mostly parents want what's best. They are struggling to get good information on what's going on. There's not you know, a lot of states are not, we're still fighting. I mean, your state, California, it's still throwing circus around when test results are going to come out and how they're going to be reported. You know, New Jersey sat on results for, you know, a long time. And there was Honestly, sort of, yeah. yeah. And there was no sort of outcry that like, why would particularly like, you know, it's a state led by a democratic governor, you know, the party that reports to be for the little guy, why would they be sitting on this data? And, and one of the reasons cynically, I think is it showed the charter schools had, had really done a, done a particularly uh, good job on average uh, around some of this, but for whatever reason, why is this data not getting out there? Um, and so parents are kind of left confused. And meanwhile, they're just trying to live their lives, right? They're not, you know, the wonks are like, hey, when's the data going to be released? What's going on? But parents, they're not sort of on the edge of their seat about that. Life goes on, they're living their life. And so I think a lot of it is we just have not communicated very clearly. This is a really serious situation, not for every kid, but for a lot of kids. You need to figure out um, what's going on. 
and uh, and here are resources and tools, and then here are resources and tools for for remedies. And I think you know some states have done a good job with this, but I think just overall we have not had that kind of attention. And to the extent like the public debate, you look at the last couple of weeks, it's been this like you know whatever version this is of the sort of Randy Weingarten school closure debate has been what's consumed everybody's attention. And you know they dragged her up to the hill for for that hearing, and you know. There, yeah. wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about like, what do we do now? What does this mean? It's like, it's, it was just like, let's fight about 2020 again. Um, and, and I think we need to figure out how do we sort of, you know, bring people together. And I know like, you know, we should give a, a shout out to learning heroes who are, you know, they're out there doing, trying to do public awareness work on this. Yeah. They're doing actually advertising campaigns, billboards and so forth. Yeah. So there's, there's people trying stuff, but um, we're just not from our political leadership. We're just not getting the kind of concerted effort. Um, that we need. And I can tell you, like just in Virginia, one state, every time we bring this up, every time the governor brings it up and, you know, the state board does anything, you get a bunch of pushback of, oh, it's a manufactured crisis and so forth. And, you know, we have the biggest NAEP drops of any state. Like that's not Virginia data. That's national, that's national data. Our own data confirms that. Um, But it turns into this political fight rather than a like, okay, like what now kind of kind of conversation. So anyway, that's my read. I know I think you think a little you're starting to worry a little bit more and have some sleepless nights that maybe people actually don't care. I'm saying that um, a subset of people, um, the meritocracy folks, uh, they care and they know. Uh, exactly where their kids are and they're in contact with their private schools and maybe, you know, they're, you know, upper middle class public schools that are segregated out from other kids and they know and they really care because they know that the well-being of their children depends on are they, you know, strong in these in these foundational skill levels. But I think across a, a, a growing percentage of the public education establishment I think there's more and more indifference, or um, perhaps they've been convinced that um, these indicators aren't as important as social emotional health or whatever it may be. And I'm, I'm not downplaying how important social emotional health is. Um, but when you look at the dashboard in California of the garbly gook of whatever it is, 16 indicators multiplied times six, it's it's incoherent. No one can know. Yeah, and yeah. in Chicago, they just adopted another one of these multiple measured pieces of garbly gook that mean absolutely nothing. And, you know, it could be that they're doing it in the face of parents that are saying, oh, no, 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 you're, you're, you're denying me access to what I really want to know. But I, we don't see that really emerging anywhere. And so, you know, I feel like we may have to go through this cycle of like people seeing the skill levels of their kids get dropped so significantly that we'll see, we'll start to see the the rebound at that point. But at this point, I, I can't say I, I see early indications of that rebound. Yeah, I mean, the one you know thing to bear in mind, I guess, on this is the public school establishment. I mean, they approach all this stuff as a public relations problem, yep. right? Like I remember, I remember a super an urban superintendent once who there was a sort of real big reveal in the local paper that they'd basically been lying about their graduation rates and so forth, and. Um, the superintendent was like, yeah, we, we have to obviously get on top of this and, and we're going to make sure there's never a news story like this again. Right. Like, right, not, right. you know, and like th- these people are public relationists sort of at, at heart often. And it's, it's how do you, and I get it. They, cause they're like, we have to preserve this institution. We have to keep support for public schools. So you have to tell a good story and so forth. And, 
you know, I've always been much more in the sort of just be a realist about achievement and you can bring people along and you can show them leadership and there's a theory of action there. But so a lot of this is approached as a public relations exercise. Um, and you sort of see that it's how do we, you know, how do, how do we tell the story? How do we point to the good stuff? We don't want people to be demoralized and this kind of thing. And so like that, you, you see that reflected in a lot of the communications. And so it's also, I think, you know, it's understandable that parents would not realize the, the extent of some of these, uh, the extent of some of these challenges. And then it's also just a hard problem to think about. I mean, you know, there's, the, the, there's some stuff coming out and Mackie Raymond's been vocal on this. She's a, um, uh, out at, at Stanford has been real vocal on like the, the pace of catch up is not sufficient. Right. Not even so there's also like people are worried because it's not as there, there, there's not like an easy vaccine here or something like that. Yeah. I, well, look, and this is where my cynicism comes out. And I just feel like, um, there are broad comparison points that can sometimes start to change, you know, public opinion when we have some big foreign threat you know, that relates to education. Oh, we're following behind the Russians. We're following behind, you know, the Chinese, Japanese, whatever it may be. Oh, okay, we got to get our acts together. Um, uh, I don't really think that we have some international comparison point that's going to change the discussion. I think the one that actually is going to sh change the discussion is when the affluent and, and the elite kids, you know, when their separation gets to be so pronounced from what we're seeing in the rest of society, it's going to be, you know, a sobering moment, but we've got to figure out a way. How do we make that emerging divergence in skill levels of children and, and young adults even more apparent to people? Yeah, I don't know if I agree, though, that 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 gap has been there. I mean, I think this is part of the problem, right? When you talk to the 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 the, the sort of the meritocracy, as you described, when you talk to people who, you know, they, they think the kids where the schools aren't doing well, they think they're like a little bit behind. It's probably not as good. Like you just, people don't realize you're talking about like, you know, high school students reading at like low elementary school levels and doing math at that level and so forth. And I, so I, I think that gap is like already there. It's because we're already a fairly, you know, just segregated society in terms of where people socialize, recreate, mix, all of that, that, that like people just aren't like generally aware of, of the extent of these gaps now. Yeah. But I think they, th I think the general, I mean, whatever, there's so much variety in public opinion, whatever, but I think there's a vast swath that assumes that all kids rich and poor have suffered through this somewhat mm -hmm. equally. And we've, you know, we've seen a drop across them all. And I don't think that's the case. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't think that, yeah, the, the Kane date and some other stuff. And actually, we can talk about the NAEP. You saw this it, on all the NAEP data that keeps coming out. And it's now showing up on the history and civics data that just came out um, earlier this month. It's the kids for, who are already furthest from opportunity are, are hardest hit. And I think you're right. People don't aren't sort of getting their head around that. Yeah, let's pivot to this uh, NAEP civics stuff. Um, I mean, you had talked to me earlier this week about, you know, your concerns on this. Get me started. Where, where, where are you thinking on that? What, what's your thinking on this? Well, it turns out we don't know a lot about history and civics. Um, <laughs> I mean, what's interesting, it's a longstanding thing. I, I, I found the reaction to it actually more interesting than the results. It, the, the, the results on these tests haven't been good for a long time. And it would have been kind of surprising. The story would have been if they coming out of COVID, if like they somehow were really good, that would have been you know yeah. interesting. Um, it was more the reaction and almost like the unseriousness of it, like immediately, um, you know, the... Uh, Miguel Cardona, the Secretary of Education, put out a statement where he just lumped in all this culture war stuff. And you were like, and then you, know, you had all these people who were, you know, 
sort of, you know, tying themselves in knots that he wasn't making causal claims, but it's like, well, then why even like raise it? And he, I think he missed a real opportunity for leadership. But then like two days later, three days later, whatever, like Betsy DeVos comes out with a statement and she's blaming like a set of other things. And like the weird thing, these really low and unacceptable results on history and civics, like predate both of their tenures, right? Like nobody, yeah. nobody has to, from the Trump administration or the Biden administration has to own these things. They're a much more longstanding problem. And so it was just kind of interesting. We, we, we have this situation where I think it's fair to say a lot of kids who are graduating from high school couldn't pass the test we require of new citizens. Yeah. Um, they don't know some basic knowledge and there was just sort of an unserious response when we know like right in front of us, some, some real causes for this. We don't teach this stuff. We don't spend enough time on it and we don't teach the content and yep. we're still sort of failing to, to talk about that. I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt, the, the uh, guy that wrote, um, well, he's written you know, several books, um, but his, his book, The Righteous Mind from 2015, where it really talks about the metaphor of you know the elephant and the rider. The elephant is your intuition. The rider is your intellectual ability. And everybody wants to say that they are governed by their rider. You know they are making their decisions based upon you know all the new data that's coming in. But really, when you unpack it, we're all guided by our intuition. Um, and so you know we're all guided by our elephants. And you know whenever Nate comes out, all I see at that moment is all the elephants come together into just a, a pack of pachyderms, right? And they just run in their direction and say whatever the heck they want that aligns with their intuition or with their political agenda. And um, it's, I think it's important that we have Nate. Absolutely. For Pete's sakes, we got to have Nate. Um, but the fact that we can draw no causal connection to anything, you know, within, within Nate just speaks to it's not sufficient. We have to have more data so that we can start to make causal connections. Um, otherwise, all of our pontificating on these ed reform issues or whatever is just going to um, end up in cacophony for forever. Well, Nate's like a treasure trove of data. I mean, you get all this data, they survey students, you get all this data on you know what kids are up to and, and all this. It's just, I think it's more like like so many things, like the winner is always sort of monocausality and it tends to be that cause tends to like curiously completely align with whatever anyone's priors are on anything. Um, yeah. uh, and like, I mean, like you, Nape isn't causal and we should be careful, but like when you look at it in total and, and contextually, exactly. you, can start to, you can start like, it, like if you look at the way we teach history and civics and then you look at the results, like I think a reasonable person can can crosswalk and make some inferences there for perhaps why we're why we're seeing those results and it's not the kids um uh but we just uh yeah the debate becomes you know highly political tom loveless who is a you know longtime analyst of, sure. of, of nave you know tom he thinks that with the way we're doing the releases now that this is like gonna the way it's gonna be um i sort of hope he's wrong about that some folks on nagby have sort of pushed back and been like no we're gonna handle this and make it but like Tom's kind of thinking that this sort of politicalization of, of every release is, is, is sort of going to be the new normal, which would be, which would be unfortunate. One thing about the civics component to NAEP is that I tend to encourage us to focus most of our testing. For me, like I've written that piece, um, uh, you know, around the eight words that define, you know, a high quality mm -hmm. school. You know, and those are schools that positively affect the rate at which children learn, positively affect the rate. Um, 
And when it comes down to that, you know, usually I want to think about basic literacy and basic numeracy. Are you accelerating growth in those two areas? Um, and then what happens is when you start testing all the different curricular areas, now, now the testing regime gets to be so big, you know, we create the option you know, we, for the other side to start attacking oh, or over testing. On the other hand, if you only test in basic literacy and numeracy, then you're open to the accusation that, oh, you're narrowing the curriculum to only care about those things. Uh, do you have any idea about like, what's a good balance here for us to be focusing on? I mean, I, I think this was something the civics and, and history results put up, particularly the history results. You, you, you have to ask when people are like, we're teaching reading and we can't teach history or social studies. You have to ask them, well, then what the, like, what are these kids reading? And the answer is honestly often really low level garbage. Yeah. Um, like good schools can, can combine these. And we know that like you need a, a knowledge rich curriculum, that the knowledge is a predicate for learning. It's a predicate for literacy and reading. And so I think good schools sort of tie this together and don't get caught up in this false choice. The problem is we just don't have as many of them. And I think we talked um, an episode or two ago about like this new study on Cornellage schools. It was um, right, right. a lottery study of charters uh, in, in, uh, in, in the Denver area using Cornellage and, you know, not surprisingly much better results. Yeah. Well, um, my sense is that, well, I've, I've been trying to keep track of how many school visits I've made. I'm definitely north of 850. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, the next five, 10 years, what, what I make sure I get to a thousand, right? But the reason I made these visits is what you pointed out at the beginning of the, of the episode, which is just the closer that you get, the more you realize, you remember the work and you just come out with a little spring in your step. But that also, it, gives, it gave me a chance to observe a lot of things in, in charter schools and other schools as well. And there certainly were during the NCLB days, a subset, a fairly small subset of charters that really pressure cooked, focused on the reading and math that would bump up, you know, their 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 API scores, at least in California. But generally, that's not what happened. Generally, you know, the charter schools were standing on their heads and using every everything that the kids were passionate about, you know, to increase the basic scores. But in the traditional public school system, in the school districts, that's where we absolutely saw the narrowing happen. And I also think that the teacher unions, they recognize that if they continue to push into that narrowing, they were going to get more allies from parents. So even though it was counterproductive for the kids learning in the short term, they chose that from a political standpoint. And I don't think we've gotten out of that cul-de-sac yet. We could do a whole episode on sort of the passive aggressive responses to policies that people don't like to effectively sabotage them, right? So like during No Child Behind, you saw like places were canceling field trips and stuff because of budget reasons, but everybody was just like, oh, it's the testing. It's, you know, um, uh, and, and and so we that could be a whole, that we could do it. We could call it like the passive aggressive episode. We could do like a whole a whole thing. I think, I think you are right about that. I also think it's just, it is a lack of capacity. I think one of the mistakes that was made with No Child Left Behind, and I was certainly guilty of this, was this assumption that if we started to put in place the accountability, it would create the context and conditions where states would invest, you'd build capacity. And instead, it, it you know, you did get a little bit of, you know, the, the beatings will continue to morale improves. And so schools were doing unproductive things because they just didn't know any better. 
they didn't have better strategies. And, and that's a place where I think we do have to think about how do you build that capacity? And that's where some of this more, so some of the, the, the sort of, you know, systemic reformers who were sort of, you know, the, the broader standards-based reform, they always talked about this. And I think some, it, it was easy to be dismissive of that. Um, again, I think that was something I was guilty of. And it turns out like, you know, they had a really good point that schools were going to react in, in counterproductive ways. And we, we, we've certainly seen that. Yeah, they learned one of the best um, strategies against all boats rise is sabotage your own ship. Um, and I think we've seen that played out on, on several fronts. But in terms of like, I don't know sure if this is passive aggressivity, but it's certainly reactionary. Walk me through what's going on with DeSantis and, you know, some of his latest stuff, because all this stuff seems like I do something because I've seen my the other side do something that's even more ridiculous. Or Where are we? I don't even know that it's that. I mean, so an education has sort of been dragged into this because it's an issue. I'm not actually sure. Like, it, it's hard to tell with a guy like Ron DeSantis how strong his, his opinions about education even are. But he clearly gets it's a convenient political cudgel. So, you know, higher ed and, and, and K-12 are, are getting dragged in. I think it's 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 more he doesn't seem to have sort of any limiting principle. He, and he just doesn't seem like a guy who will take yes for an answer. And so um, he 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 like, you know, he's done some stuff that's actually more popular than people realize politically. But then he doesn't stop there and he just goes and, and, and takes it further. And you see it on sort of issue after issue. And it's kind of an, it's kind of an unattractive way to, to, to practice politics. And, you know, the week we're recording this, they just passed a whole bunch of new you know laws, several of which are just clearly um uh, not going to pass constitutional muster. Some of the stuff down there is already in, in, in court. And, and DeSantis, he's a lawyer. He's clearly smart enough to, to know that. And so it's just, it's this sort of political theater with no limiting principle. And I think it's aimed sometimes less at the Democrats than just how far can I push this stuff with, you know, to make a name for myself within my own party, but it's causing chaos. It's causing, you know, real wreckage in, 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 in some cases. Um, and it's just turning education into this, this complete sort of culture war foil for, for what seems like sort of electoral theater uh, in, in large part. To what extent do you think that education's challenges long-term are a function of the fact that from a public policy standpoint, it's just a canvas for people to like make their statements and their statements always undermine consistency, coherence, uh, long-term strengthening, whatever it may be. And that as long as we keep our public schools in a circumstance where they are the primary canvas for these kinds of political gestures, we're not long going to, we're not, we're not going to see the kind of um, improvement we want. Well, I mean, I think actually at the rate we're going with this stuff, you're going to see more and more people want to just pull out of the public schools for yeah. different, for different reasons. I think that's more the direction that that goes and it will become because, you know, you're going to see you're seeing like now and, and on, you know, the pronoun thing in, is, is is interesting where like, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people like you don't want to do coercive things. And so telling people they have to say things that they don't believe and so forth, particularly kids in a public space is a First Amendment issue issue there. But it's different with employees of the school system. We, we you know, teachers engage in coerced speech all the time. It's why you, you know can't teach that the earth is flat. You can't like, we, we have a, we have a curriculum. You can't teach both sides of the Holocaust. Um, uh, like we, we, we have teachers do this and now DeSantis is starting to push on this and no teachers have, you know, we're going to say the agents of the state can and can't say certain things and so forth. 
if, a, if, if that's struck down, it's theater. If that's upheld, it will unravel the public schools because the whole enterprise is predicated on this idea. And I think people have been a little dismissive, like, oh, that stuff will never happen and so forth. But like, that's where we are. That's where that's where they're pushing down there. So that's the first thing. And then I think the second that's just interesting to me, Jed, with education, you know, part of the thing that I think w w is going to run into some trouble in the courts is they want to out, you know, states have more control over schools than people realize. Like, so they can say, hey, we're yeah. not going to have degrees in this. That's that's actually that's under your purview of um, uh, that's under your purview as, as, as a state. But they went much further than that and said, well, also, you can't teach certain theories and so forth. And that's going to be. You know, that's going to be contested. And I feel like you have to strike a balance. You know, academic freedom and inquiry is important in this. And, and the whole scientific process is different ideas getting tested and accepted and rejected and so forth. And we should be very cautious when we get to the point where we're like, we're not even going to allow you to engage in certain theories. I mean, you know, first of all, it's a little medieval, but it's also just counterproductive, right? And I, I, and it's interesting, and we're seeing this where this where plays out more substantively um, uh, in K-12 is we're moving, I think, and this is a good thing, to, to require, you know, teacher prep programs to teach science of reading in, you know, a, in, in a way based on the evidence. But you don't want to get into a situation where you say, if you're a professor at an ed school, you can't criticize science of reading. You can't like say that you think there's merit to whole language, there's a distinction between actually training and, and certifying teachers and sort of the academic freedom to continue to pursue different kinds of different kinds of theories and so forth. And um, uh, so I think we want to, uh, th there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening here around these things. And it does, I think, put pressure on some pretty important things, including like this, the role of academia as, as inefficient and everything else as it can be to have that role of being a place where you still have like real free exchange um, of, of ideas. So I, I think Florida, Florida is hopefully not sort of coming attractions on what this is going to look like, but if this style of politics works, you know, politics is a monkey see monkey do business. So we'll see more of it. Yeah. I think we've just had generations of there's really been no other option and, and the political wars on the, can't, public education canvas have not been as extreme, but you put the two things together. The wars are more extreme, that canvas is as attractive as it's ever been, and parents have options to just like get out, forget it. This is just completely and utterly dysfunctional. Puts uh, the education establishment in a fundamentally different place, I think at risk. And, you know, we'll see what happens between now and the end of the decade, but we can, we can see a, a significant increase in the number of parents that choose to educate their kids in private settings. Yeah. And it'll be interesting because like, I mean, my theory on this right now is you've got like, you know, 10 to 15% of people on the left and 10 to 15% of people on the right who um, are going to struggle to be in public schools. They can't be in community with others because of like just these strong beliefs that they have. And it will be ironic if instead of like those people needing to go to private schools um, so they can get the different things that they want, that it ends up being this this hollowing out of the middle because people are sick of the of the political theater and, the, and this kind of thing um, would, would be sort of an ironic turn of events. So let's bounce it back. We've gone left, right. We started in the in the, in the Bay Area. We went to uh, Florida. Now I want to bounce back to the Bay Area and to Oakland. Let's wrap it up there. Um, this, is I, your this is your backyard, Jed. Tell us what... 
What's the matter with Oakland? Well, the thing is, I wrote about this at Charter Folks so long that no one wants to hear me start on this. So let's let me start with you. What as a as a you know person observing from a distance, what do you make of the strike? What do you make of the resolution? What do you make of the idea that the teachers are advocating on not just their own issues, but on the you know the the common good? Any any starting point analysis of, of that? Yeah, look, it I mean it told me like Ron DeSantis does not have a monopoly on political theater, right? Like there, there was no, there, this strike was clearly avoidable. They clearly wanted to strike. It was a membership engagement thing, make a point. We're seeing more and more strikes like that. Um, and, and, and like everybody got what they wanted except the kids who lost, you know, untold uh, learning and so forth, had their educations disrupted kids in Oakland who can, who can least afford it. Um, uh, and, and so the whole thing's the whole thing's unfortunate, I thought. And yeah, I mean, the common good bargaining is like it's a fancy way of saying we're going to just, you know, anything goes and it just expands the universe. It, it's it's completely preposterous. And why people like are, are like, don't just be like, well, that seems preposterous. We should be focusing if you're going to bargain and, and, you know, you should be focusing on these core issues, not this expansive, um, expansive definition of it. And like you saw this during the pandemic when, you know, like the teachers in LA at one point, the union down there was like, we'll go back. You know, one of our conditions for going back is a moratorium on charter schools, which I mean, it's obviously like, look, you can be for or against a moratorium on charter schools, but as like a COVID policy, that's obviously completely absurd. And, you know, that, that this sort of expansion, there aren't enough people just to be like, hey, this is ridiculous. And we're so sort of hardened as a partisan matter that when you say this is ridiculous, people are like, oh, then you must be like a union buster or Republican. When in fact, like like the median position is this is kind of ridiculous, but too few people are willing to sort of get out there and the kids are taking on the chin. So that's my that's my read that the whole thing was theater and avoidable. And I was stunned that like folks um, like Lakeisha Young and so forth who were out there arguing against this, trying to get kids back to school, that there was not more national attention on them and their efforts. Yeah, I thought Lakeisha did an awesome job. And um, when the when the Los Angeles Unified strike was recently um, resolved, I tried to show how there was virtually no difference substantively between where the parties were before the strike and where they were after. So what was this thing all about? Um, same thing in Oakland from a substantive standpoint. There's no main, there's no difference. Um, and the the union was on these common good things. They were negotiating over procedural things. Make a committee. And it has, you know, representatives of the of the teacher union in certain numbers, and that's it. but there's no substance there, right? Uh, and they uh, they have majority control of the board of the of OUSD to begin with, right? They're not even getting any substantive progress on their matters. So I just think these things they again shake the confidence of parents and the general public that our public schools are are on the right track or, you know, are in, are anything other than completely and utterly broken and something that you want to avoid if at all possible. And, uh, you know, it, the, they're just folks, whether it's DeSantis, maybe he hears that he just keeps doing his stuff with impunity, the teachers union in Oakland and in Chicago and in Los Angeles, they may hear that, but they keep doing their stuff with impunity. And it just, you know, it reminds me of Warren Buffett talking about bankruptcies, right? Bankruptcies, um, happen very, very, very slowly, and then all at once. I thought and, that was Hemingway. <laughs> oh, really? 
Maybe, well, I don't know. I think that's sun also rises. We'll have to we'll, we'll put we'll put it in the show notes. All right. Okay. Good. Well, Buffett probably said it. Buffett probably said it too. So it's it's it it seems right. All right. Well, um, but it, you know, the overarching point, just that um I think we are making incremental damage to our to our public education efforts that um are really putting us at risk. And it's a time for us to be more sober. Uh, if, if at all possible in, in, in terms of looking at these things. Yeah, a little less theater and a little more sort of, yeah. And, and again, I think the media has a, a role to play in that and is falling down on the, on the job. And I think leaders in our sector have a role to play in that uh, and, are, and are too frequently the tribe, the, the, the allure and the comfort of the tribal politics is real. And, and it's hard for people to sort of step out and say, no, this is nonsense and we can do better. And like Oakland seemed like, that seemed like nonsense um, and, and really unfortunate nonsense. Well, on that sobering note, we'll uh, have to make a, a mental note to start off with, you know, some, some positivity on the next call. But uh, always does my heart good to see Andy. And you, yeah, great to see you, Jed. You, you smartened me up. So uh, I, look Likewise. To, I look forward to talking to you again in another couple of weeks. Yeah, me too. See ya. Okay. Take care now.